My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Now, as we jump into the Bible, and before we get to Ruth, I, I want to, I'm, I'm a little bit curious if you find yourself in a similar situation that I kind of find, found myself in when I was first navigating through the Bible. As an early follower of Jesus and, and as a baby Christian, and I was reading through the Bible and walking through these stories, so many times I would just feel incredibly intimidated and, and kind of inadequate. Like not up to the task, because you're reading these stories and, and you've journeyed through, if you've been walking with us, you see these amazing events. I mean, big people doing some big stuff, right? Abraham leaves his homeland, just kind of takes a, a risky move, doesn't know where he's going, but God calls him big faith and he jumps and he he does it. You, you see like Moses perform these amazing miracles. I mean, through God, he, he, he's able to move. God moves through him and he destroys, really, really breaks the back of the world power of the day. And he does it via miracles. I mean, it is incredible. It's the, the triumph of God's victory. You, you move from that and you get Joshua, who's, who's strong and courageous in these military battles. You get the strength of a guy like Samson. And you read these stories after story after story. All these big people doing these big events and then you kind of look at your life and you think, when was the last time I parted the Red Sea? You know? Or like Jacob, when was the last time I actually physically wrestled with God? Whatever that means. Do you ever, do you ever feel like you're just a small person doing small things, an insignificant person doing things that really don't matter? Because you read this book and there's just hero after hero after hero and you kind of feel like Robin holding the utility belt for Batman, <laughs> right? Like, am I ever going to get a scene? Am, am I ever going to get a movie, right? You're just kind of the sidekick kind of sitting there like, wow, look at this big stuff. I'll tell you, when, when I was young, I felt this, just an overwhelming sense of just insignificance. That I wasn't going to be able to offer the world 
much, that I wasn't capable of much. I, I, I just felt like a small guy who was just going to do small stuff, just a blip on the lifespan of our universe. That was me. You see, I struggled so much with my self-esteem when I was young because of just my learning disabilities. I was embarrassed that going into high school, I was reading at an elementary school level. And I, and I just kind of, if I'm honest, I became comfortable with that. I kind of became comfortable with, with just living in poverty. I became comfortable with the idea of maybe I would just do the pattern I'd seen in my family. Many of my family, because of some mental or physical limitations, just in order to make ends meet, would live off of government assistance. And, and some of those circumstances just completely out of their control. And I saw that kind of rhythm and I saw that kind of pattern. And I just kind of assumed that would be me. That I didn't have much to offer. My mind didn't work like everybody else's. School was so incredibly hard for me. I didn't know what I was going to be able to do because I couldn't read a sentence of English. And so I just thought to myself, I'm just going to coast. I'm going to be really kind of comfortable living in poverty. I'm not going to do much. And then I became a Christian. And here's the crazy part. That feeling of inadequacy got worse. It got worse. My grandma would read the Bible with me because, again, I was just starting to gain those skills so late in uh, my youth. And my grandma was reading the Bible to me. And I remember getting to one of the last messages and last teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus tells his followers, and he is telling us the same thing. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go make disciples of all the nations. What? Like, I thought just normal expectation was hard. I honestly believe that Jesus gives us the most burdensome expectation that any leader in history ever has. Right? Jesus is not comfortable with regional success for his followers. What does he tell us? I want you to have global impact. Right? Make disciples of all the nations. Basically what he's saying, go change the world. Go change the world. I can hardly tie my shoes, Jesus, right? I can't even read this book, and you want me to tell the message of the, your death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and the transformation of our lives? How? I felt like a small guy doing small things, and I'm reading all these stories of big people doing big things, and I felt inadequate. I felt like my life was boring, my life was mundane, my life was going to have no real impact. And I think if we're honest, we all feel that way at times. We all have those feelings of inadequacy. And maybe they come from a different space than mine do. Maybe your feelings of inadequacy come from shame in your past. Maybe you're saying, you know, Paul, you, you don't know the sin that I've done. You don't know the habit I have, the addiction I have. You don't know the things I've done. You don't know the people that I've hurt. You don't know the people I've climbed over to be in a successful position that I am. You don't know the ambition that I have that has just really run amok in my family, but I'm successful. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my shame. You don't know when I see the expectation of God how much I say to myself, not me. Or maybe it comes from a physical limitation or an emotional limitation or a mental limitation. I don't know. I don't know where your feeling of inadequacy comes. But I think we all feel that way sometimes, especially when the expectation of God comes to us and we confront it and God says, I want you to change the world. 
all of us feel like, man, I'm just too small. The events of my life are just too small. Enter in the book of Ruth. Here's what we're going to see. This lady who looks like an insignificant lady, a nobody, if you will, is going to make one decision. It's a big decision, but it's an everyday decision. She's going to make one decision, and this one decision is going to ripple out throughout the book. It's going to change her life, her family's life. It's going to change the nation of Israel's life. And here's the crazy part. Her one decision actually changed your life, changed billions of people's lives. And what we're going to see from this is her perspective is really simple. It's the big idea for this morning. The big idea of this message is this. Every day is divine. Every day is divine. There is no idle moment in our life that isn't beyond or is beyond the meticulous control of God. God is designing our lives for these moments to move his global mission forward. And if we would open our eyes and see that every day, every day is no accident, but every day is divinely designed to move his global mission forward. If we capture that idea, if we harness that perspective, we could have the same impact that Ruth had. So let's jump right in. Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. Again, what we're going to see in chapter 1 is we're going to see the first move. We're going to see the the first decision, the everyday decision. And it'll seem simple and it'll seem somewhat small. But what we're going to do is we're going to watch this one decision just ripple out throughout the entire book over and over again. And that one decision actually changed all of human history. One decision, one everyday decision divinely designed to move God's mission forward. Let's jump right in. Ruth chapter 1, we're going to pick up with verse 15. Now, a little bit of background. This book does not start off super well. It starts off with tragedy. We have the death of three men. We have a father and two sons who die. This creates now three widows. Three widows is how the story of Ruth starts. And in the ancient Near East, a widow was in the most vulnerable position. She was just incredibly disadvantaged. Uh, Jumping into the workforce would be something that would be incredibly hard. So them surviving would be hard. And Naomi, the mother-in-law of these two daughters, and she says to her daughters-in-law, she says, you guys, you need to go. You need to go back to your home. Don't come with me. I'm going to go back to my family. You go back to your family because that's the only way we're going to survive. We are the most disadvantaged people there are in the ancient world. You need to go back to your family. Maybe they'll help you out. Right? Look at how Ruth has this conversation with Naomi. Naomi encouraging her to go back home. Look what Naomi says. Verse 15. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. You should do the same. Now just stop for a moment. Naomi's an Israelite. She's a part of the people of God. A famine drove her into the land of Moab, but she should be a devoted follower of Yahweh, a devoted follower of the God of Israel. And what does she tell Ruth to do? Go home. Go home. But she says more than that. Go back to your own gods. 
Does that sound like great advice from her mother-in-law there? Now, no offense to the mother-in-laws in the room, right? No offense to Betty, my mother-in-law, your great mother-in-law, you would never say something like this, right? But this is terrible advice. She's telling her, don't, not just go home, hey, go worship your other gods. What a terrible example of Israelite faithfulness here. But then that sets the stage for Ruth. Ruth is going to give an entirely different perspective, which is kind of wild to think about because Ruth is a Moabite. Now, to us as 21st century readers, that doesn't mean a lot. But to the people of Israel, a Moabite was the person you would never think to be a model of faith. If you remember, if you're walking through the Bible with us and you've read Genesis, you know the people of Moab start in a very, very shameful way. I would say one of the most grotesque uh, moral stories is how the people of Moab start in the book of Genesis. Moab was a son born of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. Gross, right? That's the start of her family tree. Every time someone said, hi, I'm a Moabite, that's what they would think of, right? They would just cringe, right? Just a shameful family tree. But it gets worse than that. The king of Moab was actually an oppressor of God's people during the time of Judges, during the time of Ruth. But even on top of that, the people of Moab were actually cursed by God. God told his people, you can't allow them to go to any festivals. You can't allow them to come into the assembly of the Lord. You can't allow them to celebrate my faithfulness to my people because when you were leaving Egypt, they made it hard on you. As you were passing to the promised land, they made it hard on you. So God pronounced a curse on these people for generations saying they can't come in to our celebrations because of what their ancestors did. So think of that as we encounter this statement from Ruth, a Moabite? What a shameful woman, a people cursed, and really right now, a woman marked by tragedy. But here's the one move, the one decision that will ripple out throughout the book. Look what Ruth says in response to her mother-in-law's plea for her to go back home and worship other gods. This is verse 16. But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you or turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Now, from a financial standpoint, this is a terrible decision. It's a terrible decision. I mean, just just on risk analysis, this is a terrible idea. Because Ruth has now really compounded her problem. She's a widow. Her mother-in-law is a widow. The only person in a more vulnerable state in the ancient world besides a young widow would be an older widow. And Ruth says, I'm not only going to try to figure things out for myself, but I'm going to try to figure things out for you too. I'm going to be with you. What an incredible, loving choice. But there's more than just love here for her mother-in-law. This is a religious choice. She's loving God in this move. So look at this wonderful example. I mean, in the backdrop of Naomi's really 
terrible spiritual advice to worship other gods. We have a Moabite, a shameful woman marked by suffering, tragedy, and a curse on her people. She is the one who's an example of faith, right? Look at how she continues on. She says, your people will be my people, but then we're in verse 16, the second half here, and your God will be my God. Now, she's not just saying, hey, I'm going to accompany you. Maybe I'll attend your services. It's more than that, right? Look at the next phrase, verse 17. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. This is serious. She's not just saying, well, I'll go to church with you, right? Easter Sunday service, we'll do that, right? Your God will be my God. I'll I'll, I'll just casually accompany you to spiritual things. No, 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 no. What does she say? She pronounces a curse on herself, and it says, in the name of the Lord. And if you look down in your Bible, that's bold, Lord. That term is a name that God gave to Moses. When Moses said, how am I to call you? How am I referred to you? And he says, here's the name I want my people to call me. I want them to know me personally. So I'm going to give you my name. You're not just going to kind of an abstract and general calling of me. No, no, no. You're going to call me Yahweh. That's what you're going to call me. And every time you see in your English Bible that word Lord in bold, that's that covenant name that God gave to his people when they were first birthed as his people, when they became a nation under the leadership of Moses. And what is Ruth saying? May the covenant God, the God of Moses, Yahweh, may he curse me if I don't do what I said I was going to do. Isn't that remarkable? That's from the lips of a Moabite. So she decides to move. Now again, is this a big decision? It seems like a big decision, but she's just moving. But this one decision right here is the decision that will ripple out throughout the book, that will ripple throughout Israel's history, and that actually gets all the way to impact us. And what I hope to do is show you as we zoom out and see the impact of Ruth's one decision, we'll see that our decisions can be very much the same way. That if we zoom out, we can have an impact too. One that we may not know of, but one that God is divinely putting together, designing together. There are no small events in the plan of God. There are no small people in the plan of God. And this is perfectly pictured in Ruth's story. Jump to chapter 2. Chapter 2, let me show you. We're going to work throughout this book. And I'm going to show you how this one choice is just going to ripple throughout the story. Chapter 2, verse 3 says this. She now moves, goes with Naomi, and then she finds herself at a field. Verse 3 of chapter 2. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, this may be a little bit lost on us here, the details of what's going on, but here's how it happened. In the economy that God set up, God said, here's what I want you to do. If you own a field, I don't want you just to harvest every single corner. I want you to leave some gaps. Don't get it all. I want you to leave some gaps. And the reason I want you to leave some gaps, because at times people will find themselves in a vulnerable position. They'll find themselves, because of circumstances in their life, in a place where they need help. So you leave those portions to those people. So that's what Ruth's doing. Well, she just so 
happens, as the author says, to find a field. And that field is owned by a man named Boaz, who happens to be a part of her extended family. This is important because as God set it up, God said, if there's ever a time where a woman finds herself as a widow, somebody in that extended family can marry her and basically bring her out of that disadvantaged situation, can bring her out of poverty. It was called a kinsman redeemer, or as our translation has here, a family redeemer. So think about it. She just so happened to find that field. I mean, there were a ton of fields. And she just so happened to find one that happens to be a family member's. You can already see that God is divinely designing this encounter right here. And her one choice is going to start to ripple out into a good reputation in the land. Because remember, she's a Moabite. As a Moabite, she already has a reputation. But look at this. A, A foreman sees her. Boaz comes to the field and Boaz starts talking to his foreman. And look at what the foreman says. Jump to verse 6. It says, The foreman replied, this is to Boaz, She is the young woman from Moab. And now you know that's already a loaded phrase. She has a shameful story. They are an oppressor and they are a cursed people. But something else starts to eclipse that reputation. And it's that one decision she made to move. That one decision out of love. That one decision not only out of love for Naomi, but love for God. Look at what the foreman says. From Moab, who came back with Naomi. How did he know that? Did he follow her Twitter page, right? She saw on the Snapchat, her Instagram. Hey, moving, click, right? Road trip, right? How did, how did this guy know? I don't know, but the word spreads, And apparently Boaz knows a little bit more and he is impressed because when he interacts finally with Ruth, look what what he says. Jump down to verse 11. It says, Boaz replied, I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your land to live among complete strangers. Man, you really love your mom, right? Or your mother-in-law. I admire that. But Boaz sees more. Her reputation has grown beyond just somebody who loves her family. What does Boaz pick up here? This is not just a family move. This is a religious move. This is a loving God move. Look at the next verse, verse 12. He says, May the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Now, notice what he's saying here. He's not just saying, hey, may the Lord bless you, my God, may my God bless you. He doesn't talk just solely about his devotion to God. What does he point out? Ruth's devotion. What does he say to her? The God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He says, I see what you're doing here. You woman of Moab, you poor widow, shameful people, cursed people, and you made a decision, not only that loved your mother-in-law, 
but out of devotion for the Lord. May God bless you. He is impressed with her reputation. He's impressed by her move. And this is about to set up the next kind of event. And that is this marriage. She moves, makes a simple everyday choice to move. And this ripples out to change her reputation in a land where she already has a bad reputation to start. But that starts to be eclipsed by this new reputation of being a loving woman to her mother-in-law and being a loving woman to Yahweh, to God. And Boaz, the one person who can redeem her. A hero here who can change her entire story is now starting to be impressed. And it sets the stage for a marriage and a really weird proposal. <laughs> really, really weird. If you're a young adult, right, or, or you're single and you're thinking about how to set up that wonderful proposal, don't look in this book. <laughs> don't. Don't do this. I, I don't. There are certain things in the Bible is just describing to us and not prescribing to us. This is one of those moments, Okay. Naomi gets wind that, oh, Boaz, this happens to be a, a family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. You'll see in this story there's another man, but he's not really important. Boaz is the one that they want to redeem this situation. So Naomi starts thinking, okay, we got to set this up. Boaz is impressed. He can help us. So she tells Ruth, I want you to get dressed up. I want you to take a bath. That's a good way to start a marriage proposal. <laughs> Taking a bath, okay? That, that's good. And then she says, I want you to get dressed. Now, she's a poor widow. She probably doesn't have very impressive clothes. But hey, put on your best. And then the plan from that moment gets super weird. And it's probably because we just don't know what's happening in that culture. We just don't know enough what's going on. But Naomi says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait till nighttime. And Boaz will be at the threshing floor. And I want you to wait kind of in the dark. And I want to wait till he's asleep. And then you're going to break in. Not a way to start the proposal. You're going to break in, and then I want you to uncover his feet. Then I want you to lay right beside him. And when he wakes up, the proposal will happen. What a terrible idea. All right? Breaking and entering is not romantic. Right? That's not... Have you ever anybody, like, start their story? Well, how did you and your husband meet? Well, it was about two o'clock at night and he broke through my window, uncovered my feet. You're thinking to yourself, nope, nope, new friends, right? New friends, I'm good. I don't need a felon in my life right now, right? But this is what she says. And, and not only that, the, the plan is not a very well-conceived plan because what, what Naomi is setting up here is you're going to have a, a woman propose to a man. That's not, not very common. Then you're going to have a young woman propose to an older man. Okay, that wasn't as common either. You're going to have a field worker propose to a landowner. Okay, that definitely wasn't common. And you're going to have a foreigner propose to a native. Everything from a natural perspective tells us this is a terrible idea. But guess what? It worked. And why did it work? Because that one decision to move had built this reputation. Watch this, right? In the middle of the night, in his grogginess, somehow, he wakes up and this plan unfolds perfectly. Look at verse 9. He wakes up and he says, who are you? Which is exactly what I would say if somebody was laying at my feet in the middle of the night. Who are you? He asked. 
I'm your servant Ruth, she replied. Here's the proposal. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Wow. You usually don't make life-altering decisions in the middle of the night, right? You decide if you're going to eat that cookie, right? Or something like a midnight snack. That's about as much capability as you have in the middle of the night. Accepting a proposal is probably not what you want to do at 2 o'clock in the morning. But it works. Look what he says. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you are not going after a younger man. We could also translate the Hebrew there as you're not going after choice men. The idea is, Boaz knows, hey, you know you're marrying down, all right, and not up. You, you could go after anybody that you wanted, Ruth. I feel honored that you would propose to me. But there's still a problem here. How is he going to tell the town and tell the people that he's marrying a Moabite, a shameful woman, a woman marked by suffering and her people have a curse upon them? How is he going to pull that off? It's that one choice again. That one choice to move is going to ripple out to make this wedding day happen. Look at the rest of what Boaz says. I'm in verse 11 of chapter 3. Do not worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary. I'm going to marry you. How's he going to do it? How's he going to convince the people? That word right there gives us the reason he can do this. For everyone in the town knows you are a virtuous woman. This is a remarkable phrase right here. This term right here is used in the Old Testament. It's used, I think, twice in the book of Proverbs. Each time it's used, it's to describe the ideal wife. The last chapter in the book of Proverbs speaks of a virtuous woman. That's the language he uses here. In the book of Proverbs, it also says, if you find this woman, it is she's a crown to her husband. Think about that. This is a Moabite. But that one choice to move has made this marriage proposal possible. He's convinced because her reputation has been eclipsed by her one everyday choice to move. So what happens, they have this wedding and it is awesome. We have a move that leads to a growing reputation that then leads to a marriage that rescues basically Ruth and Naomi from their disadvantaged situation. But it goes even beyond that. Go to the last chapter. Ruth chapter 4 verse, I believe, 17. This move leads to a marriage, and the marriage leads to a great descendant. Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. The neighbor woman said, now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David. That's a very significant name in the storyline of God, because David was the great king. The king after God's own heart. What's wild about this is at the end of, book of uh, the book of Judges, we saw this last week, we we're kind of given this glimmer of hope that maybe a king would come. The people need a mighty leader because all the leaders, all the judges, all those guys, all those mighty men of valor and military victory, they all fall short morally and the people are just in disarray. And the last verse of the book of Judges says, maybe if a king comes, the people will get right. Here's how the king came. But now think of this. How did we get that great king David? 
It wasn't through the leadership of men. Ladies, I'm going to set you up here for a moment. First service did okay. But I'm going to need you to say amen in a moment, okay? This one's for you. So you got to take advantage of this moment. We are waiting for a mighty king. And all these men, all these military uh, victorious men, these mighty men, it doesn't come through them. It comes through a poor widow. It comes through a woman. That, that was better. I like that. Think about how remarkable that is. One woman made one choice to move. That move led to a marriage, and that marriage gave us a mighty king that would change the nation. But it goes even beyond that, beyond what the writer of Ruth can see, beyond what many of the writers of the Old Testament could see, because David, that great king, is given a promise. God comes up to David and says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a king from your line, and his kingdom will last forever. What a wild promise. That's a long time. Who is the forever king? promised to David's line, it's Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. Now put that in the timeline. One everyday decision to move. No, I'm not going to leave you, Naomi. I know it's risky. I know this is the most financially wise decision I've ever made in my life, but I love you and I love God, so I'm going to risk it. That one decision to move changes her reputation, which leads to a marriage. That marriage gives us a mighty king, and that mighty king gets the promise of Messiah. And that Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the one who died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. Ruth's one choice, one everyday choice, has literally rippled throughout the storyline of God that changes all of our story. Imagine if she didn't move. Now, God's God, right? He could have let the plan go through another person. But as he wrote the plan, that one everyday decision rippled out to affect billions of people's eternity. It's remarkable. Imagine if we captured that perspective. Imagine if we saw every day as divine. Every moment of our lives as an opportunity to expand the mission of God, to move the global mission of God forward. Imagine if we would go to that counter, stare at that lady as we are buying coffee and we saw this as a moment. There are no mundane events, no boring events, no insignificant events in the plan of God. There are no small events nor small people. We are significant people doing things that impact eternity. One man made a decision to love an angry, poor, hopeless kid. One man my basketball coach when I was young just saw a kid in need and said, I'll drive you to practice. You don't have much, I'll buy you some food. You don't have school clothes, I'll pay for your school clothes. You find yourself in a dangerous situation, page me. Yeah, I'm old. 
Don't let the baby face confuse you, okay? It's uh, Mr. Miyagi inside. I was like, <laughs> he was there to rescue me. He invited me to church. I hated God. I had a thousand reasons to hate God, I felt. He took my biological father. My, my, my family life was just in complete disarray, complete disorder. But this one man just kept seeing every day as divine, every moment as an opportunity to extend the mission of God, every day as an opportunity to see my life change. And I went, and I came, and I came to church, and I would listen to the message, and then one day it caught. And I surrendered my life to the Lord. And that one man, who was my coach, who became a mentor, is the man I now call my father. And that man is in this room. Bobby Jerome Green. Go ahead, Bobby, stand up. And this is for all of us. All of us. You are not small. The events of your life are not small. The mission of God is not too big. Simple acts of kindness, a small invitation, a small gesture of love, everyday moments can affect eternity. I was reading this, this book and it was talking about, it was not anywhere near talking about Ruth. It was talking about how different companies have leveraged a certain practice to really give them an advantage on their competitors. It was talking about this idea of crowd sourcing something I wasn't really familiar with, but I started reading it. And he told this story of this company, Nokia, who bought another company for $8 billion, a company called Navtech. And Navtech was a master. They had cornered the market on these, these in-road sensors that they would place on the street. And these sensors would give them data. They would give them information. They would kind of feed it into this algorithm. I don't know, I'm not a tech guy. right? Feed it into this stuff, and it would help predict traffic. But it was expensive. I mean, installing these sensors was expensive. But then there was this little company that started about the same time. It's a company you may know of. It's called Waze. Right? You got Waze on your phone? Waze unlocked this idea. Wait, why do we need inroad sensors? What if we just use this? What if we use the GPS data in our users' phones and track traffic like that. In two years, they had just as much information as Navtech. In 10 years, they had 10 times the amount of information. They eclipsed their competitor. We've seen this in Airbnb. If you've ever been to an Airbnb, Airbnb does not own one single room. They just use yours. And they're the largest provider of lodging in America. Uber is about to eclipse the taxi industry. How many cars does Uber own? Zero. They use yours. Wikipedia is the largest encyclopedia. They have not once paid for an article. What are they doing? They're crowdsourcing, getting everybody they can involved, and they're destroying their competitors. I pulled back from reading that, and I thought, wait. What if we crowdsource the mission of God? That's a lot more important than an encyclopedia and a car and a place to lay your head and the traffic that you get. Right? What if everyone saw every day as divine? 
every conversation in our life as an opportunity to change somebody's life. What would that look like? I want to give you an opportunity today to crowdsource the mission of God. There should be a piece of paper in the seat back in front of you and a pen as well. And on that piece of paper, here's what I want you to do. You can see that there's paper in these walls right here, our prayer wall right here. Here's what I want you to do. Is I'm going to have a time of prayer and then the band's going to come up and we're going to sing some songs. We're going to take this opportunity to be extremely intentional. And we want to be intentional in this way. We want to ask God in this moment, God, give me one name, one person, one person who's far away from you. One spiritual orphan out there who needs to hear your voice. Father, give me one name, one friend, family member, or coworker. Give me one name. And what I want you to do is I want you to write that name on that piece of paper. I want you to fold it up. And during the song, I want you to place it in this prayer wall. I want you to put it in between the pieces of wood there, just kind of as a symbol of, hey, I'm giving this over to the Lord. God, you told me that this person was the person that I need to invite, that I need to invite to Easter to hear a life-changing message, that next week this person's eternity could be changed. And that's what I'm praying for. And when you put that in the wall, you're making commitment to God too. God, you do your part, but I'm going to do my part. There's an invite card right there, an Easter invite card will be on a table right there. When you get to the wall, you can grab that and use that this week because I think eternity can change for hundreds of people this week because you made a choice, not just to pray for them, but invite them to Easter. Imagine if all of us saw every day as divine. What an Easter, what an Easter we can have. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that one man decided to be kind to one poor, angry kid. And that changed my eternity. I thank you for just the beautiful story of Ruth. An everyday choice to move has changed our stories. There are no small events. There are no small people in the mission of God. So Father, I want to pray right now. You tell us in your word, Jesus, you told us that the Father is drawing people to himself. He is calling people. I think you're already on mission. You're already on mission out there, outside these walls. You're already on mission. There are people that you are drawing to yourself. Father, you don't need us in this mission, but you invite us into this mission. So right now, today, right now, during this prayer time, we just want to align ourselves with what you're already doing. You're already calling spiritual orphans out there, sons and daughters. You created, you blessed, you made them in your image, and you want them back in the family through the redemption of your son, Jesus Christ. You want their sins forgiven, their life transformed, their stories retold, their happy ending finally coming you want them to know the hope of easter and you are calling them so today right now in this moment we say i join you dad i'm joining you i want to join your mission on reaching those people so father right now i pray for everybody in the room i pray father that you're just dropping in this building hundreds of names give us all one name but give us as a group hundreds people that we can interact maybe it's just across the cubicle Maybe it's the person we order coffee from. Give us one name. 
one story that can change. And as we place these, place these in that wall, Father, go ahead of us as we anticipate that conversation. Go ahead of us as we make that invitation to Easter. Go ahead of us. We know you're already working. And we're going to give you all the credit when the work is done. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.